0: Everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and as most of you know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On many shows like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. We've talked about topics as diverse as American presidents who came from or lived in New York, the history of women activists in the women's suffrage movement. We've talked about the history of African Americans in New York who've been here uh, since the time of the Dutch. Uh, we've gone back to the city's LGBT and the gay rights movement, and we've also explored the history of bicycles and cycling. And I was uh, telling a couple of my guests uh, before the show, we've even explored the history of punk uh, and opera. Uh, those were separate shows. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, as well as other services. Tonight, we're going back to Queens. We've been doing a good number of Queen shows lately, to the northeasternmost part of New York City, to Little Neck, which is right on the border with Great Neck, the two necks, uh, actually, which were immortalized by other names in F. Scott's Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Um I'm going to ask uh, our historian about that tonight. Our first guest is Jason Antos. Jason is a returning guest to Rediscovering New York. Jason's a journalist and author of six well-received books on the borough of Queens and is a graduate of the University of Miami. And he's also a lifelong New Yorker. Uh, his family has lived in the five boroughs since 1913. His first book on the history of Whitestone was published in 2006 when he was 25. In 2007, he wrote the first history book ever written on Chase Stadium, and it's currently in its fourth printing. Uh, Jason's Prolific has published other books, including Flushing, Then and Now, Jackson Heights, Images of America, Whitestone, Corona, the Early Years, and Queens, Then and Now. And he's working on his latest book, which is on the history of, you might have guessed it, Douglaston and Littleneck. But Jason is the associate editor of the Queen's Chronicle, and if all that isn't enough, he's the president of the Queen's Historical Society. Jason, another hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: What, uh, where are you from in New York originally? I know you're from Queens, but what part of Queens did you grow up in?
1: Sure, I was born in Flushing, uh, but I grew up uh, in Whitestone, and now I reside in the Beecher section of Whitestone on the northern uh, tip of the town.
0: How did you first get interested in Queens history, Jason?
1: Oh, for me, it really started, uh, years ago uh, when I was in high school. Um, I did a project on, uh, on a house that was here on Powell's Cove, uh, between, uh, 158th and 160th street. And that was a home that belonged to, uh, Thurston, uh, who was one of the greatest magicians in the world at that time. And, uh, he was the, um, uh, Houdini was his protege, and uh he was uh situated here in in Beechurst, in whitestone and I did a report on his home and then I did another project on the Hammerstein mansion, which years later became a catering hall it was known as ripples and it's just up the block from here and While I was in high school and in junior high school and in grade school that all that all that property was abandoned and my friends and I we used to sneak in there and and look around and that really sparked my interest, you know, uh, you know, before the development really took off, there was a lot of that around here. So that's oh, really the, That
0: was in the good old days when there were actually, you could get into abandoned houses and there were no security cameras yes. to keep you out and have a lot of fun. God, I remember yes. those days. I'm, I'm dating myself now.
1: Good
0: times. I, I'm curious what, what happened to Thurston Houdini's protege? Did he meet the same end as, as, as Harry Houdini?
1: Uh, no Thurston, I, I, he, his death, I don't think was as tragic. He died of natural causes. And his home actually stood until, oh, I'd say around 2000, 2001, and then it was torn down. And there were three uh, homes built on that one property.
0: Jason, when and and how did you first get involved with the Queens Historical Society?
1: I started uh, working with Queens Historical Society in 2006 when I did the Stone book. And that was my uh, first project. Um, I was very nervous. I was only 24 at the time when I started writing it. And, um, they were the first, uh, agency that I had reached out to for help, uh, to look for historic photos and documents. Uh, I really had no idea of their existence prior to working on it. And, um, you know, they were very, I guess, impressed how young I was. Like I said, I was only 24 at the time when I started, uh, this whole venture. And, uh, from then on, I would work with them, uh, with every book that I did. And, uh, you know, became very friendly with the people there and, and did a big working relationship with them and then got on the board. And now I'm the president. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I suppose you majored in history at the University of Miami. Is that a stretch to guess that? Or did you? <laughs>
1: uh, no, no, I, I majored in journalism. Oh, you did. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's uh my degree is in, Yeah.
0: Well, let's get to Little Neck. How did Little Neck get its name? Because you have Great Neck, which obviously is 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 pretty big, and Little Neck. If you look at them on the map, they really don't you know look the same. They're 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 very different. Little Neck is just really really small.
1: But how did it get the name Little Neck? So Little Neck comes from uh, the same as Great Neck. It comes from when Long Island separated from Connecticut during the Ice Age. Okay, so when they when it separated, the the separation the point of separation created these necks or like little peninsulas. It's almost like if you tear a piece of paper where the tear line is, that's it's all jagged. So it's the same principle, and that happened you know, tens of thousands of years ago. It was known as the Wisconsin, w- Wisconsinian Glacier. And as we descended southward from Connecticut, and actually the gap in between is the Long Island Sound, and uh, the North Shore is very hilly and heavily wooded uh, because that's the top of the glacier. And then as the ice melted, as the ice age receded, the uh, outwash which uh, created the south shore of Long Island, and that's why the south shore is at sea level and it's very swampy.
0: Wow! Wow! I didn't and know
1: that. Um, and the, the the tear, the separation point. I'm sorry for a Great Neck is you know the neck is a obviously wider. It's a bigger, jagged peninsula, and that's why one is great and the other one is little.
0: You know, I've always wondered in the Great Gatsby, was uh, uh East Egg the acronym for not the acronym, but the uh, metaphor for Great Neck and West Egg for Little Neck, or were they different were they different parts of
1: I think yeah, one uh uh what was it? East Egg I think was uh Port Washington or Manhasset, and then West Egg was Great Neck. Oh,
0: okay, okay. So <clears throat> one of
1: the eggs was definitely Great Neck.
0: You know, one other question I got to ask you about Little Neck, yeah. and that's Little Neck. Before we get to the history, Little Neck clams. Um, when I was growing up, I lived in Manhattan Beach, and my father, we'd walk across the bridge when I was small to, to actually to Joe's Clam Bar in Sheepshead Bay. It doesn't exist anymore. And they would always have two kinds of clams on the half shell. They'd have cherry stones and Little Necks. And as a kid, I always wondered, you know, why people would want the smaller clams <laughs> because the cherry stones, when you were a kid, you know, it's like, well, the, the cherry stones are so much bigger. Did Little Neck clams come from Little Neck and are they still, can, are, are, are there still Little Neck clams?
1: Sure. Uh, there, there's not as much as there used to be. Uh, clamming was one mm-hmm. of the major industries uh, in the area uh, 150 years ago. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the first um, uh, people who dug for clams uh, and made an industry out of getting those clams out of the Little Neck Bay were emancipated slaves just after the Civil War, who had come to the area and set up, uh, you know, a homestead. Uh, A lot of them uh, were, and so a lot of this uh, African-American community uh, went into the clam digging uh, business enterprise, and some became very successful at it because there was such an an abundance of Little Neck Clams. But yeah, but when you see Little Neck Clams on the menu, that's uh, where it's coming from. Now, if they actually came from Little Neck Bay, that's another question. But the origin of the Little Neck Clam is, is from Little Neck.
0: Oh, cool. Let's go back further in the history of the area, even before emancipated slaves settled there. Um, and that's Native Americans. I, You know, a lot of people talk about the history of New York, and they first focus on, on when the Dutch came and when Europeans settled. But I, I like to, I'm always interested in, in the people who were here before Europeans came. Did Native Americans live in what would become Little Neck before Europeans arrived on the scene?
1: Well, yeah, Sure. Native Americans were in Little Neck uh, for 2,000 years uh, before, um, before the first Europeans came. Uh, they were the um, uh, Algonquin-speaking uh, division of the Lenape, uh, who were one of the biggest uh, tribes in, uh, in the city and in greater Long Island, uh, they refer to the uh, north shore of Long Island as Matinicus, which means uh, the place of the hilly country or the heavily or the hunting place. Uh, and actually, there, you know, the the place of the hilly country, you know, refers to the you know hills and huge uh, ravines that uh, I mean or cliffs that you would find on the north shore of Long Island.
0: When did the first Europeans start settling in in what would become Little Neck?
1: Sure, the first Europeans arrived on the scene in around uh, in the 1650s. Uh, they were Dutch and they were English. Uh, basically, the English came from uh, what would we what we would refer to today as New England. They came across the Long Island Sound and then occupied eastern Long Island and then worked their way west. And the Dutch obviously had Manhattan, which was New Amsterdam, and they worked their way from west to east. Uh, The further east you go, you tend to find uh, more things relevant to England, to British, than you do of Dutch. And that's because the English were very successful at negotiating and living with Native Americans. The Dutch and the Native Americans, they did not mix very well. It was a very hostile environment. So the Dutch pretty much remained in Manhattan and in Brooklyn and in that part of the city and would not really venture that far out east, uh, really past Flushing. Flushing was like the, as far as they knew that it was going to be risky for them because they could not really negotiate with the Native Americans.
0: Or they just wanted to be close to Manhattan, but <laughs> probably yeah. not in those days. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that um, I think the first English who settled in what became New York City wasn't Flushing, wasn't it? It was uh, uh, John Bowne, Uh
1: uh, he's one of the mm-hmm. yeah sure he's one of the original settlers. I mean, uh, John Bound is one of the the uh, original settlers of Flushing. Uh, one of the original uh, settlers in Queens County is a man by the name of Richard Brutnell, um, and his family that uh, occupied what is today uh, Elmhurst, which mm. in those days was known as Newtown, and that's one of the oldest sections of Queens and one of the oldest sections of the city.
0: Was Little Neck Bay? Did that offer? Would that? Did that become any kind of a harbor or a port for the early settlers?
1: Oh, sure. Um, the uh, for the settlers, they came uh, from Brooklyn. They came from, as I say, across from Connecticut by way of the Long Island Sound and through into Little Neck Bay, and they settled. Uh, the first settlement in Little Neck, Douglaston area, was in what we know today is Alley Pond. All right. In those days, it was known as the Alley. And that area had been um, occupied by people since the late 1600s. So it's been 300 years that people have been living in Alley Pond. And there was a community in there. There were old grist mills and old general stores and roads and barns and homesteads. And this was all the way from where Northern Boulevard passes over the Alley Pond Creek, all the way south to the Grand Central and to the Long Island Expressway, down that whole corridor. But in the 30s, 1930s, when the uh, Bell Parkway system and the LIE were constructed, all of that was eliminated. Um, if it hadn't been, it definitely would have been a historic landmark. Mm. Uh, but all of that was eliminated. But it was. But people had been settling there for 300 years.
0: Wow. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, uh, I do want to ask you one other question about um, Native Americans uh, in Little Neck. We'll be back in a moment, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jason Antos, historian and president of the Queen's Historical Society. You're listening to Rediscovering New York on talkradio.nyc. back to rediscovering New York on our episode on Little Neck. This is actually episode 70, if you can believe it. I've been on the air a year and a half and have 70 episodes cranked up about this great city that we live in. My first guest is Jason Antos, uh, journalist, author, and historian. Jason's president of the Queen's Historical Society. Jason, you're incredibly prolific. You've got six books published. You're working on your seventh book, which also includes Douglaston and Little Neck. Um, How did you decide that Whitestone was going to be your first book effort?
1: Well, uh, they always say, uh, write what you know. And uh, I knew Whitestone pretty well. So I figured, listen, that'll be a very safe uh, starting point. You know, let me start off with a place that I know very well, a place that I've been living in uh, practically my entire life. So that would uh, that's, you know, and I knew that there was a lot of history and a lot uh, a lot there to offer for this type of book. So that's where I started from that point.
0: Most of your other books have been on particular Queens neighborhoods, but your second book was on Shea Stadium. Uh, what yeah. inspired you to, uh, to write a book about Shea? By the way, it's the first book that was written on Shea Stadium, everyone, and it's in its fourth printing.
1: That one was uh, 2007. I uh, was, uh, the Whitestone book, you know, listen, you never really know what the community response is going to be to a thing like this. And uh, when the Whitestone book came out, uh, we sold uh, over 1,200 copies within eight weeks. And it, it was a big, it was a big hit. And uh, so the company approached me and they said, listen, you got to write something else for us. We want another project. And it was at that moment that uh, it was announced officially that the following uh, year would be the last year for the Mets to play at Shea Stadium. I'm a lifelong Mets fan. Uh, you know, I've been going to Shea Stadium ever since I'm five years old. Been there for some of the greatest moments in the, in the stadium's history. I was there for Todd Pratt's home run in 99. I was there during the 2000 NLCS and the Subway Series versus the Yankees. I mean, I've seen a lot of great things happen at that ballpark, and I figured, okay, this might be um, a really, really good follow-up project to do, and they approved it. Arcadia approved it right away and uh, took about a year to write. But that one was a little bit uh, – it wasn't as easy as the Stone book because when you're working on Shea Stadium, you're dealing with Major League Baseball with MLB, and there's a lot of red tape that you have to go through. There's a lot of hurdles that you need to go – uh, that you need to overtake, and uh, you know, so that one was uh, in the end, it did very well for me. But uh, it was, it, it wasn't a, a very pleasurable uh, <laughs> uh, project to work on. But it was very, it was awesome when it was done, and I got a lot of uh, good press out of that.
0: Oh, great! And that's available on Amazon, obviously. Available
1: on Amazon, yes.
0: Um, let's go back to to Little Neck. You know, one of the things that I was surprised to read about about the area is that unlike most of the rest of what would become New York City, there was actually a battle between armed settlers and some of the native people who had been living there. Um, how did that trend? Because usually people, you know, Lenape people sort of got sick and they moved on. You know, there was, there was a very high death rate from diseases that Europeans brought in the 17th century. How was it that there was actually an armed conflict in, in what would become Little Neck?
1: So Thomas, uh, Thomas Hicks... Whose uh, descendant uh, Benjamin Hicks is the founder of Hicksville, uh, was one of the principal landowners in uh, the Little Neck, Douglaston, and the western part of Great Neck. And his property line ran all the way from basically there on Northern Boulevard and Marathon Parkway, uh, all the way down south, uh, all the way shooting south uh, towards the Grand Central. I mean, he owned, uh, I mean, his family owned a tremendous, tremendous amount of acreage. And uh, the natives were on his, what had become his property, and he had been disputing with the uh, bureaucrats in uh, New Amsterdam and then eventually what would become New York to have the uh, native peoples to be pushed off of uh, his land. Um, And they were very reluctant, I guess, to to do so for the, the local government to get involved. Because uh, they were really, they were really still trying to sort things out between, you know, what would belong to the settlers and what would belong to the Native Americans. So uh, Thomas Hicks took his uh, took matters into his own hands, and uh, in the fall of, I believe, uh, 1665, uh, he led a, a group of militia uh, into the wooded area just north of Northern Boulevard and between Marathon and Little Neck Parkway, and he pushed the remaining natives off their land. And it was it's the only Uh, armed seizure of land and property ever recorded in Queens County during the colonial era. Um, And he was never persecuted for it. And the natives were pushed off their land and he took total claim of it. And that's what happened.
4: Hmm.
0: Well, let's fast forward um, a couple of centuries. Little neck's history is literally joined at the hip with Douglaston. In fact, your upcoming book is going to be on Douglaston and Little neck. Um, the neighborhoods are often described together, although I have to tell you, when I was growing up, I'm, I'm almost 60, I heard about Little Neck all the time, but never heard Douglaston in the same breath as Little Neck. Yep. <laughs> so, I'm not sure why, but um, um, let's talk about the Douglaston Hill Historic District. How old are the houses there, and and what's their architectural significance?
1: So Douglaston, uh, and especially Douglaston Manor, <laughs> uh, was developed uh, by the Rickard Finley Company Uh, Rickard Finley also developed several other areas in Queens. They developed uh, Westmoreland, which is in Little Neck. Uh, They developed Broadway Flushing in Flushing uh, on Northern Boulevard between 162nd and 150th. Um, And so those areas were built. uh, They were the first real estate company not to just offer vacant lots for sale, but lots with a already constructed home. And these uh, homes were built from all various architectural designs, uh, you know, from things that were uh, colonial era all the way to um, modern day, uh, what's known as arts and crafts style of architecture. And uh, these homes were, were, are beautiful. Uh, most of the homes are still standing in Douglaston Manor, which is why it uh, was eligible to become its own historic district, which it did about 20 years ago. Uh, but that is the significance. Also, when you buy that home or you buy a home in Westmoreland or in Broadway Flushing, you're, um, you're tied to what's known as a covenant. All right? It's known as the Rickard Finley Covenant. And this stipulates that you cannot do major alterations to the home unless it falls within the guidelines of this covenant. And that's to keep the symmetry, the consistency, and the architectural beauty of the neighborhood through generations.
0: But it sounds almost like the restrictions that you'd find in New Orleans with the Vucaray uh, Commission. <laughs> yeah. In New Orleans, you can't even paint a shutter unless you get get them to approve it. Um, how old are the, the oldest homes in the historic district?
1: Oh, they date back all the way to, well, you have the beautiful uh, Douglas Manor, uh, which was uh, uh, first uh, occupied by uh, uh, Cornelius Van Wyck, who was one of the founding fathers of, founding settlers of Douglaston before when it was still known as Little Neck. Um, You have, uh, so that home, uh, which was, uh, today is now the Douglaston Manor uh, Club. I mean, that home dates back all the way to the uh, mid to late 1800s. And it's been altered uh, since since it was first uh, occupied 200 years ago. They added another floor, but most of the interior is intact and it is a on the uh, register, National uh, Landmark register, um, and uh, so the homes there are, and sometimes, and you even have homes uh, uh, that date back all the way to the 1700s. You wow. have you have uh, the Van Wyck home, uh, which is a colonial homestead home, which is still located uh, in Douglas Manor. That too is on the National Register as well. And uh, but yeah, then all the other homes are from pretty much 1906, 1907, 08. Uh, but they have been preserved uh, for over a century now.
0: I know there was a farming industry. If you call it an industry, there was farming in Little Neck that uh, also produced food for for New York City and for for Western Queens. How long would farms still have been in in Little Neck? When when would we have seen the last farms there?
1: You would have seen the last farms by the late 1920s, early 30s. Um, by the 1930s, by the beginning of the Depression, that's when farming was done in Queens. And you really had uh, maybe two or three areas that were uh, very uh, into, uh, very heavy with farming, and the rest was being developed uh, at a very rapid uh, rate. Uh, by the 30s, uh, Little Necks farming days were done. And if you wanted farming, you had to go to the south shore of Long Island or to like uh, Fresh Meadows area. That was still one of the last farming uh, strongholds in Queens County at the time.
0: Well, speaking of that, of that time frame, um, I was really uh, intrigued to read that there was a Native American cemetery in Little Neck to about the 1930s. What what was it and what happened to it?
1: So uh, ju- just before I mention that, there is still an operating farm uh, on the southern tip of Little Neck. It's the Queens County Farm Museum. Uh, it's it's the, the largest operating farm in Queens. Um, and it's, uh, it's right on Little Neck Parkway all the way down where it feeds into uh, Bellrose and Glen Oaks. Uh, so that's uh, you know, a very popular destination uh, for people all over the city and Long Island to go to is the Queens County Farm Museum. So we just wanted to give a shout out to them. Uh, but just to quickly about the cemetery. Uh, yeah, so there was a cemetery, Native American Cemetery, on the north side of Northern Boulevard. It was located between um, Jesse Court and Cornell Lane. Okay, today it's the site of the um, Queens County Savings Bank. Okay, and that cemetery was a very small cemetery with about a dozen or a dozen and a half graves. Um, and it had a small wrought iron fence around it with a little gate they would walk into. And uh, there was buried the uh, family of the Waters family um, who uh, still, believe it or not, still occupy property in that area. Uh, they're still descendants of the Baron and Waters family uh, of the Matenakak who still live in Little Neck. They still live in the same home. I think they've lived in that home now for well over 150 years, and they've lived on that property for almost, uh, two hundred. Um, wow. The, uh, so Thomas
0: Hicks didn't didn't actually get rid of all the Native Americans then. I mean, they didn't all leave after that 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 battle. And there were still Native yeah, peoples who who lived were in the land.
1: Still Native people who live there. Uh, you um, you have a there. The community had that cemetery there, even though they were dispersed all over Greater Long Island, and um, that cemetery was there until 1932. Uh, what happened was in thirty two that is when the widening of Northern mm-hmm. Boulevard occurred, and in order to widen the boulevard from one lane going east and one lane going west, uh, they had to eliminate the cemetery as the si- as you know the curbside was pushed back and expanded, and that cemetery was dug up uh, the bodies were removed um, by the city of New York it was heavily photographed and heavily covered in all the newspapers. And the bodies, instead of being reinterred interned uh, individually, they were all put into a mass grave at the Zion Cemetery, uh, the Zion Church on Douglaston Parkway and Northern Boulevard. And they put a big boulder that said, here rest the last of the Matinacock. But obviously that's not true because you have descendants that are still living there today. And Donna Barron, who's a, a direct descendant uh, from that family, she still lives in Little Neck, and she wrote, uh, the forward to the
0: book. Mm. Is, there, is there any other, are there any other remnants or anything that people can see of the Matinacock and Little Neck aside from that from that grave?
1: So uh, aside from it, at the corner of Northern Boulevard and Marathon Parkway in uh, 2015, uh, myself and the board of the Bayside Historical Society, we approached Community Board 11 and we got approval to co-name that intersection uh, Northern Boulevard and, and Matinacock Way. <clears throat> Uh, I was afraid that the community board wasn't going to go for it, but they voted on it unanimously very quickly. And from the time we started that project until completion, it was like l- less than six months. It was like five months or four months. And along with the help of councilman Vallone, we were able to, uh, co-name, uh, that street Matinacock way. Cause it was at that intersection where the stop and shop is, uh, where, uh, where the last, uh, skirmish took place between Thomas Hicks and, uh, The remaining settlers.
0: And that's about where Northern Boulevard meets Marathon Parkway? Correct. Oh, okay. Well, Jason, thank you very much. Uh, Our first guest on this episode about Little Neck on Rediscovering New York has been historian and president of the Queen's Historical Society and journalist Jason Antos. Jason has published a number of books, including on Whitestone, Shea Stadium, and his latest book coming up will be on the history of Douglaston and Little Neck. And speaking of the intersection of Northern Boulevard and Marathon Parkway, our second guests actually have a business right at that location. Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, we will continue with our episode on Little Neck. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
0: back and you're back to rediscovering new york support for the program comes from our sponsors christopher pappas mortgage specialist at td bank to find out how chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you please give chris a call at 203-512-3918 and support also comes from the law offices of thomas siaka specializing in wills estate planning probate and inheritance litigation Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering New York is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York, and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning, New York, with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halston. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those channels are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at York.nyc. One other note before we get to our next guests, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guests on this show on Little Neck actually have a business at the exact location that Jason was describing before on Northern Boulevard and Marathon Parkway, Joseph and Lisa Terese. Joe grew up in Great Neck, right across the city line, and he attended Great Neck South High School and went on to college at the Culinary Institute of America. From there, he worked in many restaurants, including banquets at the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan. In 1991, he joined the family business, which was established in 1972, Marathon Food Shop. What started as a deli and grocery store now includes extensive catering with the addition of Joe's skills from the CIA. His wife, Lisa, grew up in Forest Hills and attended Forest Hills High School. She went on to college at Queens College and worked at the county clerk's office in New York City. She married Joe in 1992. In 2008, she retired from working with the city and joined Joe full-time at Marathon. Lisa and Joe Teresi, welcome to Rediscovering New York.
7: Thank you for having
4: us. Thanks for having us.
0: So you're not only native New Yorkers, but one of you is almost a native little a native Little Necker from Great Neck, and Lisa, you're from Forest Hills. Uh, Forest Hills High Schools, like I, I got to ask you on a couple of shows. We've talked about the Ramones. Um, did you know anyone? Of course, they came before they were before your time, but did you know anyone there who any teachers who would who who, who would ever talk about them or mention them?
4: There were teachers that that probably mentioned them, but to, you know, at that age, it was just like, oh yeah, back then. You know, they just seem like too far along ago for us.
0: Oh, <laughs> I think they started to play while, while they were still in high school. Um, they were, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then they left. And sadly, none of, none of the four of them are, are with us anymore. Um, Joe, as a graduate of the Culinary Institute, um, I got to ask you, I went to Vassar and there were lots of CIA people who worked at Vassar. And I never got to ask them about what it was like at, at the school. What was it like studying there?
7: Um, it was at the time it was a two year program. It was intense. They, uh, it was very regimented, and it was all the guidelines and base, you know, basics of of cooking and uh, you know, getting getting started with the restaurant in the restaurant business. So, what
0: what is it that had you decide to go to CIA instead of instead of studying in the city?
7: Uh, its reputation. It was. It's one of the. Top uh, culinary schools, and that's where I I chose to go. I looked into a few other ones, and uh, that's where I chose. And the distance was good for me. Was, you know, not too far, and and uh, it was good. It was it was a good choice
0: for me. Before you went into the family business, you worked at 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 the Waldorf. When when were you there?
7: Uh, late eighties to uh, till I went back to the store. So yeah, late 80s to the store. so we did, uh, and I basically did banquets there, and then uh, worked in the steakhouse, Pull and bear restaurant. Also, I did shifts there. Also, they they moved you around in in the uh, in the facility.
0: Did you work anywhere else between the Waldorf and going into the family business almost thirty years ago?
7: Yeah, I did. Uh, I did a little uh, corporate catering also, where the it, it, uh, company was uh, at the time called Corporate Food Service in Manhattan. They did. Uh, I'm going to say more cafeteria style. They did like a banks. Uh, I landed in a law firm, uh, cooking in, in for the uh, lawyers and and the, the law the law practice in Manhattan. And uh, from there, that's how I ended up in the Waldorf. Uh, two two employees and I all moved over together to uh, to go work there.
0: Mm. You know, a, a friend of mine managed the Waldorf a long time ago. I don't know if he was there at the same time. Do you remember Andy Crociolo? No. no. Okay. Um, there used to be, he uh, used to have a guest house in New Orleans, and there was a picture of him on the wall in a wood-paneled office in the Waldorf. I have to ask him, uh, you know, when he was there. I don't, I don't know the exact years. Um, it's an interesting decision when people decide to go into the family business. You know, sometimes people are eager and embrace it. And sometimes they go, I'm not going to do that with my parents. Yeah. What had you decided to go into the family business? I think 29 years ago.
7: Yeah. Well, um, it was a great platform for me because since I, my love is cooking and the store was there and uh, like the grocery business started changing, the whole business started changing with the neighborhood. Uh, the, The supermarket came in, groceries died down. So we started doing hot lunches, and things like that. So I was able to kind of like do my own thing. And uh, working for yourself has a lot of benefits, and you know, flexible, more flexible hours. And at the time, until you know, my parents stepped out of the picture, but it, it was just a much more uh, comfortable setting for me. And like I, like I said, I got to do more of what, what I like to do. Mm. So.
5: Well
0: you and Lisa were married in in 1992 a year after you went into the family business was there any coincidence at all at the timing for you getting engaged and deciding to uh work with your parents
7: um a little bit i'd say money was much better than than working you know working in the hotel so that helped and, and it was the, the right the uh, right stepping stones hmm. so yeah so yeah so i guess it had a little bit to do with it but you uh, know
0: at least, I want to ask you about about your professional history. Um, you worked for the county clerk. Was it in Queens uh, or New York in County?
4: Man- New York County in Manhattan.
0: Oh, so you worked for Norman Goodman, my namesake? I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was um, sadly he he died a year ago, but there was a there was you know he he was uh, someone that we all knew when we got our jury notices. You know, <laughs> 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 greetings. Too. You know. Yeah. Yeah. At what point um, was it decided that that you would go into the family business with Joe? Because you you left the city working, I think, in 2008, was it?
4: Well, I went went into working with Joe in 2008. I left the county clerk a number of years before that um, when we decided to start a family. And I was home with my two girls for a few years. And once they were in school full time and, you know, needing me not so much during the day, I started out just by helping Joe with little little bits and pieces. I have no culinary training, so I guess you know if you stand anywhere long enough, you learn what's going on. And little by little, I learned how you know the kind of help he needed. His parents were you know stepping out of the business more and more, and it just it it just kind of fit. He was looking for some more help. I was looking for a place to be.
7: And she's also the backbone of all our uh, bookwork and uh, organization and getting all all our bills out on time. And she's, I'm not so great with that. That's who takes care of all the, that end of the store, making sure everything's paid on time, making sure, you know, it it runs smooth.
0: Lisa did, was any of the cuisine or the uh, catering offerings changed since you, since you became more full-time in the business?
7: No,
4: I wouldn't say that. I think that Joe's, Joe's pretty, pretty widespread with what he can offer. Um, and and he's very um, he's very flexible as far as you know if somebody were asked for something that maybe wasn't on our catering menu or wasn't something we normally do Joe would Joe finds a way to make it happen um, and I like Joe said I'm mostly the organizing part of it you know I'll, I'll make sure that you know he knows what he needs to order for what he's doing but the creativity and the skill is definitely all from him. Mm.
0: Well, you know, I'm a I'm a big foodie, and just imagining this, I'm starting to get a little hungry. So, and I know that when you went into the family business, you brought your own color and your own ideas. You know, what kind of additional dishes and things did you bring to to Marathon after you started taking over the business?
7: Well, like when I took it over, it was more just uh, cold cuts, uh, s- salads, and uh, and grocery. So, bringing in a, ho- a whole hot menu, we did. We started doing pastas and. You know, different pasta dishes, different uh, chicken dishes, um, some signature sandwiches. Uh, and then as people's things change, people change, you know, we do, we started back when grilled chicken, grilled chicken was just, you know, a new thing 30 years ago. So grilled chicken was very popular, you know, chicken breasts and uh, just all different, all American cuisine, American Italian, mm. but uh
0: yeah. And I've, read, I've read the reviews online uh, Most of them are stellar I mean people love the, love, love the food at Marathon um, We're going to take a short break And when we come back I want to talk to you about Little Neck um, We'll be back in a moment You're listening to Rediscovering New York On talkradio.nyc Talking Alternative Radio
2: 24 hours a day talkingalternative.com
0: We're back to rediscovering New York on our episode on Little Neck. My second guests are Lisa and Joe Teresi of Marathon Food Shop and Catering. Um, one other message I was remiss, in, uh, and I forgot to mention in Jason's segment that the Queen's Historical Society is actually having a virtual walking tour of Little Neck. How appropriate and how timely! Um, you can tune into it on Saturday, June 20th. That's a week from the Saturday, and it's at 2 p.m. Um, Joe and Lisa. Um, Little Neck. Describe the vibe of Little Neck. What do you like about it?
7: Um,
4: I would say there's a definite sense of community. The
7: community, yeah. It's uh, that, that's another great thing about you know being a small business. You, we see a lot of the same customers every day. They're families. We try to treat them like family. Um, it's, it's just it's just a nice and, and warm so feeling. So many
4: of the customers know each other. But they'll, they'll people will be coming in to, for their food. And then somebody else comes in and it's like, Hey, I haven't seen you in so yeah. long. And, and they're reminiscing and reconnecting right
0: in the store. So, well, it seems yeah, but, like where you are in your business is sort of a, uh, a locus where people sort of come to eat and to, and maybe even to be in uh, the village square, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Sure. Is there anything that you feel that makes Little Neck unique compared to Forest Hills where you grew up, Lisa, or other neighborhoods that you, that you've come to know in the city?
7: The, the size of the town—it's—it's it's a nice size. It's not—it's uh, not, you know, too big, and uh, we are connected to, to Douglaston, so we do get a lot of traffic from Douglaston Manor and uh, and people from there, and it just it, it, that the Manor makes it unique on its own There's, uh just like I said, the, the whole uh, community over there, and then that brings brings it right into Little Neck, so the whole area just. It's just a, you know, great little area.
0: Actually, that's really interesting. You you mentioned that, and some I want to pick up something you said, Joe. You talked. You said the town. When people speak about their neighborhoods in New York City, rarely do people talk about the town. The you know, the identity is with the neighborhood. But it sounds like Little Neck is something more than that than just a neighborhood. It's actually people people have have a town association or a town identity with it.
7: Sure. I think
4: I think there's there's definitely roots too. I think a lot of people. That grew up in Little Neck, stayed in Little Neck to raise their own families,
7: and then it's so always so amazing. Uh, once, you, unfortunately, this year we didn't have it, but the uh, Little Neck Douglaston Memorial Day Parade—you'd be so surprised of the uh, the flow of people that come back just to see see the town and see the parade and stop in and and see how my family's doing, and it's just—it's amazing. It really is. So.
0: Your family business has been around for almost fifty years. Have have you always been at that location in Northern Boulevard and Marathon?
7: Yes. Yeah. Yep.
0: How has how would you say Little Neck has changed since you took over the family business, if it's changed at all? Most neighborhoods, I ask, how has it changed? But now, you know, since you're describing it as the town, has it changed since you since you've owned the business?
7: It's uh, it's a little it's a little more diverse now. Um, more. At the, say ethnic. uh, More ethnicities. That's the word. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Yeah. So have moved in. But they've all been, you know, very welcoming. Everybody gets along.
4: Everybody's friendly.
7: Yeah. Mm. They love the area. Uh, Everybody loves the area for the school district. Uh, The children uh, all go to, you know, the public schools, 67, uh, 94. Uh, We see all the kids after school. Um, so that's the area has changed a lot from like all different people now
0: Well, isn't that part of the story of new york? It's it's I mean, it's 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 one of the most dynamic places in the whole country Even though there are things about it that are consistent and also it's the magnet from people uh coming from all over the world and people Who may immigrate to neighborhoods in the central part of the city, you know, they then you know move around and, and 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 move further out um would you you mentioned that the people who come to to marathon that they know each other and this familiarity? Um, do you have regular customers outside Little Neck who do business with you?
7: Yeah, um, we do a lot of work with uh, with Great Neck. Uh, we have a lot of uh, trade that uh, in the morning that are coming down Northern Boulevard either to get on the Cross Island or whichever way they're going, they'll stop for their coffee. They call up and they you know they call up for their egg sandwich, and then I mean we used to have a, a number of them. To, one lady, uh, she used to pull up in the bus stop. We'd see the car pull up, and we'd, we'd have her, her coffee and her exact sandwich ready and run it out to her so she didn't have to get out of the car. You know, So, yeah, so uh, we pull a lot of business, I'd say, from Great Neck area. And, again, going back to catering, um, the fire, the volunteer firehouses, they've all been wonderful to me. Um, I've done a lot of work with, with uh, Manhasset Lakeville, with uh, Great Neck Alert, Great Neck Vigilant, uh, they all they all gave me a lot of business up at that end, and
4: the schools too. A lot, the schools. Of the, a lot of different public schools, even even as far as Jackson Heights. Yeah, I've done done work with schools mm-hmm.
0: there. So, well, it's great. You have quite a reputation for people from Jackson Heights to to yeah. uh, to have yeah. catering all the way from you know across the borough.
7: Yeah. yeah, well, we do we do a lot of work with the Catholic Church also. So, with the Catholic Church, uh, word got around, and I ended up in uh, I'd say several different churches where, where I've become, we have relationships with the pastors and uh, they use me for, you know, different events for confirmations. When the Bishop comes, I'll, I'll do catering for them. Um, So yeah, I get around. (laughs) I get around.
0: Well, Lisa and Joe, I want to, I want to turn back a question that that you asked me before we went on the air. You said, you know, what are, what are some of your favorite neighborhoods? So I'm going to ask you, what are some of your more of your more favorite dishes that you make when
7: it comes to catering? (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. My favorite dishes. That's a hard one. If I I I I was going to cater
0: something and say, what should I get for, you know, a group of people, what would you say I had to get? I would
7: definitely say uh, we we do a great like eggplant Parmesan, um, that's a great dish. A penne alla vodka. It's kind of simple, but I think we make it well. Um, a either like a chicken. Uh, we call it lemon chicken, but it's like it's similar similar to a chicken franchise. Um What else we do? Yeah, appetizer stuff. Uh, we do nice coconut shrimp. Ooh, those are yeah, those are things. I'm getting hungry just hearing yeah. you say that. <laughs> <Things I> like. <laughs> and and man,
0: Jason man. also gave his thumbs up. He's getting yeah. hungry too. Listening, yeah. <laughs>
7: And then you know, on, on the cold side, we do a lot of uh, we do a lot of heroes like the the longbread uh, heroes. We do one; it's called the Chef Joe's. That's the with the fresh chicken cutlet and mozzarella and roasted peppers. Those are real popular. We like I like those, but all good stuff.
0: I want to ask you a question: As a business owner in Little Neck, um, is there anything that you struggle with in the neighborhood?
7: Uh, the parking situation. Yeah, parking's rough you know being on on our corner we have the bus stop and the parking's a little tough for us but uh
4: business wise, business wise no.
7: we're you know i mean maybe just, we we've been doing it so long we're used to it and we, we just we go, with the flow. we go with the flow but no no major complaints do you see yourself,
0: do you see yourselves opening up another business in little neck sometime
7: uh no only because I'm, I'm strange like that. Even with, with work, I don't take on more than I, I feel I could handle. And I I really can split myself in two. So I like to be hands-on. I, I like to be the guy to talk to the customers. So I couldn't do that in two locations. Hmm. So I'd find, I think I'd find it hard to split myself. And uh, although I'm very confident with my crew, the the guys I have working for me, they're great. And I couldn't do it without them and without Lisa. But uh, to have two businesses, I think it would be too much for me.
0: Mm. So. Well, in the minute we have left, I have one other question I want to ask you. Is there any particular advice that, that you would have, Lisa or Joe, for anyone who was thinking about opening a business in Little Neck?
7: Uh, what's no. worked for us, for me, treat, it like, treat your customers like family. Just treat them.
4: And be consistent.
7: Be consistent and treat them the way you'd like to be treated. Right.
4: be fair.
3: Always and be you're fair. fair
7: and, uh I don't know, sometimes uh, the, the dollar amount isn't the, the most, the most important thing. It's making the person happy. So if mm. you could do that and find, uh, I guess, find a good, good spot where we could start something up, definitely worth it.
0: Mm. What's your phone number for in case people want to contact you for catering?
7: Uh, 718-229-1711.
0: Well, great. Well, Joe and Lisa Teresi of Marathon Food Shop and Catering, thank you so much for being our guest on on Rediscovering New York tonight.
4: Thank you for having us. Well,
0: everyone, we've just finished exploring the northeastern corner of New York City and Queens, specifically Little Neck. Our guests have been Jason Antos of the Queens Historical Society and Lisa and Joe Teresi of Marathon. If you have questions or comments about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at
3: Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness?
5: Every Tuesday live at 7pm we focus on a particular neighbourhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7pm on talkradio.nyc.
2: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.